Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie making process. Hosted by aliens who look a lot like humans. Because why would another planet produce anything different? <laughs> now, let's dim the lights and start the show. I love that he laughs. <laughs> like, as he's still so good. Punchline. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by. Manhattan Magazine. Catch the latest on New York socialites and also read the 50 reasons to love New York only in Manhattan Magazine. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is a film podcast for movie lovers, nerds, by movie lovers and nerds and also filmmakers. Like this is uh, the kind of... This isn't the kind of stuff we do for a living, but we we certainly, you know, are filmmakers for a living. Todd's a full-time producer. He's a musician. He has a lot of insights, you know, around sound. And you've actually God, said we we're going to do a preamble, but now I, I kind of want to touch on one small thing, which is yeah. you have done sound mixing for a feature film before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm curious, what was that experience like? No, oh, it's <laughs> it is a, it's a lot. It is a lot. I mean, um, there's a lot that goes into it that you don't think about um, if, you know, you're just a, a a simple musician, you know, writing or recording and mixing your own stuff. It is nothing like that at all. Uh, I mean, it it is in a way, you know, you EQ things, you compress things, you make things more audible than others at different times. But for the for the usually especially when you're doing indie stuff where there's very little budget and you're you're having to do a lot with audio that's not necessarily recorded well or recorded for the purpose because audio is the last thing that most filmmakers think about so it's the thing that is the worst usually you know like the the frame will look good the shot looks great the acting is is well done the directing is fantastic the lighting is great and it sounds like shit and and then they give it to you and they're like here you go make it perfect and you're just kind of like with what this is garbage and then they say well can't we just adr it well i mean it's not uh, you you can but then you got an adr film and that is n never desirable you know not just from a you know an audio point of view but from a directing point of view you know you don't like having to adr it's not something that you not even just doing the ADR, like that's, that's bad enough, but, you know, doing it in a way that's going to, that you know is going to fit into the film as seamlessly as possible. It's never good. So yeah, it was, it was a lot, took forever to do because it's a long time, you know, and, and you have to balance scenes with scenes. The first scene has to sound similar to the last scene in volume, in timbre and in, in everything. And so and then, you know, half the time the filmmakers will come back with, oh, hey, we added some frames here. We removed a shot here, you know, after you've been working on it. That's not and good. So, yeah, that's, that's never fun. It, even though they have picture lock, quote unquote. That's what it's supposed to be for, yeah. That's what it's supposed to be for. Uh, but it's all right. You know, you just kind of roll with it. I know that our our friend Scott, who's been on the podcast before, he he was just working on one. And I need to check in to see how it's going, but I know it's been pretty frustrating for him. I think that, you know, in like bigger budget films, when they have, you know, the budget for this, that they allocate, these kinds of things probably still happen, but they're much more manageable because there's a lot of money around them, right? There's money to do ADR correctly if you have to do ADR. There's money to um, redo things if it's necessary. And in, in you know, the filmmaking that, that I've been part of where it's mostly, it's mostly indie stuff. They just don't have that budget. And it's very frustrating. 
Because honestly, if, if I was making a film, sound would probably come first. And that's not just because I'm an audio person. Maybe it is. But it's mostly because I like movies because I like the way they make me feel. And if something sounds like shit, it doesn't matter how good it looks. It makes me feel not good. It makes, me, it, makes it feel cheap. And I would rather something sound really good than look good any day. Any day. Give me an iPhone shot movie that sounds fantastic. And I'll watch that over the reverse any day. So yeah, it was a lot, but I'm really glad I did it because I got a lot of insight into what it takes to do something like that. You know, I wasn't even doing sound design. I wasn't doing Foley. I was just mixing the thing, uh, doing a little bit of little bit of sound design, but mostly, but no Foley. And it was still, oh my gosh, just a ton, ton of work. Uh, it sounds like it. Uh, we're actually going to talk about some Foley stuff here um, cool. today. So what are yeah. we going to cover? Today, we're covering Sound of My Voice. Uh, if you haven't seen that, please pause this episode and, uh, and go watch it. I believe you can. It's, uh, it's not streaming as far as I know, but uh, you, can, you can rent it on, on you know, all the platforms, Amazon or YouTube, things like that. Yeah, I watched Absolutely. it on Google Play for like four bucks. Yeah. Yes, we'll talk about several things. Uh, we'll look at low-budget filmmaking, keeping the budget on screen, uh, we'll look at some of the cinematography, fitting the style to the story and budget, uh, as well as story and writing, starting quickly, creepy moments and cults and other such stuff and things and stuff. <laughs> you gotta be, you gotta sound happy after you talk about cults. <laughs> Yay. Yay. <laughs> so quick synopsis of the film, two documentary filmmakers attempt to penetrate a cult who worships a woman who claims to be from the future. And now I'm going to brutalize this because I didn't ask you beforehand. Directed by Zal Batmanjli. Batmanjlij. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, and it's written by Zal and Britt Marling. Cinematography by Rachel Morrison. Yes, our girl. Uh, starring Britt Marling as Maggie. Chris, uh, Christopher Denham as Peter. Nicole Vicious as Lorna. Constance Wu as Christine and Avery Kristen Pohl as Abigail Pritchett. Do you know what's in that apple? Logic. Bitterness. Intellectual bullshit. You've already eaten the apple. That's what it means to grow up. The question is, how much of it can you get rid of? The apple is in you. Like the fear is in you. It's spreading throughout your body like a virus. How can we purge ourselves of shame, of self-hatred, and rise to our callings as chosen ones. You all have the privilege of knowing the future. But are you going to be ready for it? Pathetic. Uh, so I don't think I set your expectations at all on this film. And so I am curious, like, 
one, how, you know, you, how it played for you, because I think it can help to know that this is a no budget film. I just simply like this movie a lot, not because it's a low budget film, but because I just think it's a good movie. And then secondarily figuring, finding out it's a, you know, a, a no budget film in, in a lot of ways, but going in with that expectation of, Oh, this is an, this is an actual indie film. We should probably at some point have a conversation about that label of indie. Cause that gets applied to this the same way it gets applied to an upcoming $120 million movie by, you know, whoever, uh, because indie is really just a, a old term for independent of the studio system of the big, whatever, five, six film studios. But having that kind of information going into this film completely changed your expectation of what to expect from it. Um, because, you know, we just finished, uh, we're doing back to back today and we just finished doing uh, the count of Monte Cristo and going from something that had probably $80 million was shot over six months to something that had like a hundred grand and was shot in like overnight at someone's basement. Like those are two completely <laughs> different experiences. And so I'm curious, like <laughs> going in without that expectation, did you enjoy this? Was this fun for you? Yeah, I didn't. I had no idea what this was going into it. I didn't even know that Britt Marling was in it um, mm. until I saw her and and who, who I absolutely adore. Um, OA is amazing if you have not seen that. But I had no idea what to expect. And, and I mean, I could kind of tell at the beginning that, not kind of, I could definitely tell at the beginning that it was low budget. And it's funny because it wasn't because of the camera work or the acting or anything, maybe a little bit of the camera work, but mostly like the lighting. Right. So yeah, I think that mo so many people don't realize, and I'm, I'm including myself in that, how important detailed lighting really is in making a film feel expensive. Right. Because, and, and that make, that's one of the things that makes it expensive. Lighting is very expensive to do it right, and it takes a long time. So not only does it slow everything way down, but to get the right lights in the right position for the right moves is, it, it also takes a master, right? Master gaffer. A lot of people, yeah. A lot, and a lot of people to do that kind of thing. And so a lot of people means a lot of money. So with, I think you mentioned what the budget was uh, earlier to me, yeah. $135,000 for this entire film is absolutely incredible what they, what they did. A lot of practical lighting, a lot of just like whatever they had lying around, you could tell that, right? Which is why it felt, you know, like, like a low budget film, but, but the beautiful beauty was, and kind of what we, we mentioned this to each other before we, just before we started was, was they like it wasn't about that. It was about the story and not all stories have to have a lot of punches and, and, you know, crazy things happening. The story was this, they're trying to infiltrate a, a cult and you know why they give you the reason why his, his mother was kind of part of one and didn't get any help for her cancer, you know, because of it. And so she died, she basically gave up. And so he's totally against cults and he's trying to, you know, so he's trying to infiltrate this and, so you get the purpose behind it, the drive that he has for it. And also I'm, you know, you, the clip you played was fantastic because it was a very good moment of me thinking, this is such bullshit. You know, <laughs> God dang, I hate, like, this is just such garbage. Why is anybody here? And if the, and if she's really from the future, why are there only seven people in her, in her basement, you know, 
getting people to throw up. Like it just, uh, you know, why is she trying to tell the entire world, you know, like, and so I'm sitting here asking me all the, myself, all these questions of like, this is garbage and whatever, which leads to the, the wonderful ending that, that we get. And that was a shocker for me that that was it. And I love that. I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Why, why continue? Why haven't even, even a single another shot? You don't need it. Leave, leave, uh, the, the questions with the viewer of like, you know, this whole time you've been saying exactly what I just said. Oh, this is bullshit. Gosh, she's such full of garbage. This, you know, like you hear this kind of verbiage from, from everyone who, you know, who talks about who's like in a cult or like, you know, has, has, you know, all the documentaries on them. And it's just, oh, this is obviously a cult. And then at the end be it, you know, the ending happening was just so like, oh my God. So that landed um, for you then. What? The the ending like hit, hit it, you. Yeah. It was the whole movie was like, God, what, you know, I don't, I don't know what's happening. This is, it just kind of was losing me a little bit more mm-hmm. and more throughout the whole movie to the point where it was like, I'm going to hate this, uh, you know, when this is over. <laughs> and then when they, when they did the handshake, it just kind of like opened everything up. And that just, for me, was a, such a wonderful statement of, like you say all the time, first, first shot, last shot kind of thing. It not wasn't even the shot, though. That was what made it so really great for me was it wasn't like the first shot was beautiful and the last shot was beautiful. It was more of like the first feeling was interesting and the last feeling was eye-opening. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So they didn't really, because they didn't have the budget necessarily for like beauty or the story for beauty. This not doesn't have to be anything crazy. But what they did is they made you feel the first shot and they made you feel the last. And that, you know, that sticks with you. I think they did an amazing job with the budget that they had. I thought I think Britt Marling is brilliant. And I want to see her do more. I don't know why I haven't, to be honest. I'm sure she's done a lot, but I haven't seen a whole lot of it. And I I think she's a great writer. And I think, uh, uh, did she direct this too? Who directed no, this? Her, I don't know yeah, Zal. her relationship with Zal, but yeah, they, they work together a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Rachel. I mean, come on. She's just the best. <laughs> she's the best. She's the best. <laughs> really. And I think she's only gotten better over time. I think every film I see her do is just better and better, which is really cool because, you know, you there are so many cinematographers that are just steadily good, yeah. right? They're, or they're steadily great, right? But to see someone build, not just on their career, but on their skill, right? She's yeah. already top. But to keep getting better has, has just been wonderful to watch, you know? So. Yeah, I was really surprised whenever her name popped up in the credits. And I mean, I was surprised in the sense that I didn't know. Not surprised in the sense that um, yeah. I... She's probably, and I don't think it's intentional, um, but it's also not unintentional. She's probably the most covered cinematographer we've we've got, like in our 180 episodes. Like I I don't think we've done more Deacons than than her. Um, I mean, so we have this Black Panther, Dope, and Mudbound. Like we've covered so many and that's without even thinking or scrubbing through every single film like we've done four of her you know shows and there's so many times when i'm watching a movie 
and the credits roll and her name pops up. And I'm like, that's why, that's why I mm-hmm. love, I was watching, uh, uh, I don't remember what it was called anymore. Um, it was a period piece with Kristen Stewart about the black Panthers and, uh, God, it was like Sebastian. I can't remember what it was called, but I was just in love with the cinematography, like throughout the film. I was like, Oh, this is how I would love to shoot. Um, and then her name pops up like, yeah, okay. <laughs> that, that's right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, 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 I agree. And I think as much as she's gotten better, I think it's also in combination with she's gotten better budgets, right? It's one thing to be able to shoot on 135 K it's another thing to be able to shoot with 40 million or, you know, a hundred million. Um, and to just keep saying, Oh, finally I get to do this idea I've been thinking about for the last five years. Um, I have the budget to, or whatever. Um, and so those things working in harmony because she seems, uh, from the, you know, the little I, I gleaned from her that she's, she is always working on her craft and she's, just that kind of person. Uh, she's, she's interesting. If you don't follow her on Instagram, I don't follow a lot of like celebrities or, uh, Hollywood types on, on Insta, but she was probably the first and we'll, yeah, it's always interesting just to see her behind the scenes stuff. Uh, cause she's, she's a, she's a hoot. And so, but I don't know. I loved it. I was a huge fan of another earth. I saw that in theaters. And then when I found out she had another film coming out, I was like, please sign me up because I, as at that point when another earth came out, I was just acting. I wasn't really getting into filmmaking yet. And I was just so inspired by what she did by putting herself on the scene. She's like, you know what? Screw everything. And so I, (laughs) it's not a understatement to say that she inspired me to get into filmmaking because I'm like, Oh, we can do this for ourselves. We can create films for ourselves that are good and that don't cost a lot that are high-minded another earth is a very high-minded sci-fi no budget film like it's it's magical in that way and so she did it again with sound of my voice and i was like god uh, i i just couldn't wait and i loved it because i could see what she was doing is what you're saying like it's it's about story it's not about the budget it's not about you know, having a thousand moments that hit you in the face. It's let me just tell a story. And of course she's an incredible actor, um, which helps when you're a really good writer to, to bring all your ideas to life and to guide the scenes, right? If you're acting in something you've written and now you're on set with 10 other actors, they're queuing off you and you can guide the scene as an actor, knowing what you wanted to get out of this writing well, at the same time, respecting their space as a writer, like that's all or respecting their space as other actors, like that's all working in harmony. I was blown away. Constance Wu was in this, like she is a, a megastar now. And I didn't recognize her as uh, you would expect, but because uh, I'm not good with faces. But when I was putting the show notes together, I was like, oh, my God, that was Constance Wu. And, you know, if you've ever watched Fresh Off the Boat or Crazy Rich Asians or Hustlers or any of her other stuff, like she's she she's incredible. Go watch Fresh Off the Boat and tell me Constance Wu isn't an absolutely dynamite actor. And to have an actor writing and working in tandem with the director, as I'm sure they were, I think it's easier to find a Constance Wu because as an actor, you know what's good acting. And you know how to spot it. You don't need to go recruit some A-list star in order to find great actors. As an actor, you know, you should be able to gravitate towards other actors. 
So it doesn't surprise me that she was able to pull in some of these other people. Christopher Denham, he's had a really strong career since this. And yeah, and so being able to write and create your own content is inspiring and there's a lot of logic to it uh, as well. And if you're doing it right and if it's not about your ego, then you can you can do a lot of uh, incredibly interesting works that get you into Sundance. This got into Sundance, $135,000 film got into one of the premier film festivals in the world. So it's possible. You just have to know what you're doing. And in that sense, uh, let's look at some of the low budget filmmaking things that I think are happening, right? So we've mentioned seven or eight times now, $135,000. That doesn't get you a lot. You have to write around your resources, not the other way around. You don't write out saying, oh, here's all the things that I want, but I only have 135. How can I make this happen? Instead, you say, I have 135. What can I do with that? Um, and now let me start the script based on that. And so for one, minimal locations. Most of this movie takes place in a house or an apartment. And everything beyond that is like five or ten minutes worth of film. We dip into a bar. It's not hard to find a bar that will let you shoot there. Like I could get that in the next hour. I Honestly, I could. Um, and so if you... If you write that in, it's like, okay, yeah. And then on top of that, they don't even have any dialogue in the bar. It's just shots. Like it's nothing to go ask someone, hey, can I just roll some shots? <laughs> I won't yeah. put anyone else in it. Like just let me get my actor and everyone else is out of focus. Cool. Uh, so it's not hard. Of course, we're in a car. That's nothing. That's who's got a car. <laughs> and then uh, we're in a pool. We spend a little time in this little pool house. That's a little more challenging, but that might be something that like you, if I were to say, hey, can I get access to a pool? I would go to Utah and say, who do you know? Because you did Ironmans and you know a bunch of people in that area. Uh, it's not hard to start looking for resources there. The only hard one that might have been difficult to get was the museum. They shot in a museum. Those, those aren't always easy to get. Now, I don't know which museum, but... It may help or hurt the fact that they were shooting in L.A. So Los Angeles, everyone's used to dealing with, you know, location scouting and blah, blah, blah. But just knowing we don't have a lot that we need, it saves you location scouts. You don't now you don't have to really pay 10 grand to, to have someone going and, and scouting out locations for you. You just call your all your friends and say, hey, who has a basement that we can shoot in? Um, who will let me clear out their apartment? to shoot in their apartment or maybe it's theirs. Maybe they're shooting in Zal's or Brits. You it's literally that, that, that easy. So the great way to maximize your, your budget is first try to reduce the crazy locations to something meaningful uh, and simple. Another way to do it is try to find strong iconography. This is going to stretch not necessarily uh, just your budget, but the idea behind your story. It's like, okay, well, for them, their wardrobe is, yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, their wardrobe is white clothes and a blindfold. Right now we have a very strong uh, image that we can put on the box, on the poster, um, in press release. You're just like, oh, it's it's about a cult. And now people are being blindfolded, which is very emblematic of cults, right? You're a blind follower to someone that you don't know or don't trust. And so there's a lot of idea behind that kind of iconography. Um, and it fits 
all in tandem with also working without a lot of money. And so if you were to come up with some crazy futuristic cult, uh, or if you were to come up with something that has much more expensive wardrobe needs, a period piece, not something you really want to do on a hundred, hundred grand. Yeah. And so with that in mind, you want to try to keep as much of the budget on screen as possible. Uh, meaning things you spend budget on should end up in front of the camera. Don't splurge on things that aren't going to be in front of the camera or aren't going to end up in the movie itself, right? Don't splurge on food. Like they, they need to be eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Um, uh, mom's over here on the side, you know, catering for you, whatever you can do to keep your food budget down is actually going to make a big deal. It, it's also going to help if you reduce your number of shoot days, uh, because now instead of, you know, six weeks of shooting, if you can shoot this in two weeks, which they absolutely could have, they might've been able to shoot this in a week really and truly. And that reduces how much you need to pay all your cast. It reduces how much you need makeup and uh, hair on set, which is you need. And if you're going to make a, a decent movie, you're probably going to need someone who can do hair and makeup for you, but maybe not. Maybe they, because it's a cult, everything is so uh, dumbed down for cult like necessity. <laughs> maybe you don't, maybe you say, Hey, do your own makeup, come to set ready. You know that I think that would be acceptable. Not ideal if you're an actor, but uh, that's part of what you're signing up for on a no-budget film. And so anything you can do, needless equipment, we're not, hey guys, I'm sorry, we're not renting a quarter ton truck and having everything you need under the sun. Here's, you know, three grand, go buy what you need. Bulbs, modifiers, whatever. I wouldn't be surprised if Britain's Al didn't take a paycheck, right? Um, or fed it. Or if they had to for guild reasons, I don't know if they were part of any guild, if this is a union shoot or not. Uh, I would imagine not, but I don't know. Maybe they take the necessary money to meet guild requirements and then you just spend it right back on the film. Um, that's what I would be doing personally. And so you also want to minimize what's needed in post, right? There's no visual effects. There's no outlandish, like, whatever. It, gunshot, you know, uh blood splatter you try to minimize all that keep any of that crazy stuff off screen and and you probably they i don't imagine they did a ton of color grading on this uh maybe mostly like pulling back colors right they have a lot of this very yellow orange cast on everyone everything's kind of washed out which plays in you know symbiotically with with the the, the content of the story itself cults being this very washed out thing right we're all one we're all uniform we're all the same no one's better and we're all separate uh, from the world and so it's this unifying color scheme that i think works for the topic and the content and so you don't probably spend 10 grand on a on a colorist maybe rachel herself does it maybe she pulls it in grabs someone who's trying to make a name and says hey i'll pay you you know a thousand dollars come help out Mm -hmm. uh, come run Da Vinci or whatever uh, they were using back in 2010. I think this was released in 2011, which means they were probably in post um, 2010, early 2011. And so you probably do spend money, decent money on Foley and sound. That's a good place to spend your money. If you're going to spend it right. Having a, a nice sound man, sound woman uh, running, running good audio, good lobs, good boom. Uh, that's a good place to spend money. A good place is also in post on Foley, having good whatever footsteps and crinkly paper or whatever they do. Uh, an example would be this clink noise. Whenever we first, at the beginning of the film, 
they they walk blindfolded down into this basement and this big hulking guy locks the door behind them and there's this huge like clink as he locks the door that top lock locking doors they as they enter it's a rinky dinky lock but it has a strong feeling due to the sound effect and our distance from it right we can't see how small the lock is but we can tell it's not exactly fort knox in there but the the sound the the sound editing the sound effects add a sense of danger and it confirms that they're in deep and uh they're they're not coming out of that basement unless they want them to come out of that basement and you owe that to the impression that you get through the sound effects and so i would definitely want to chip in 10 15 grand um, if i had that much budget to help on good foley good sound design good good sound mixing with that in mind and pretty much everything i'm thinking about is from a low budget filmmaking standpoint. And so we can roll that right into the cinematography, which is they shot this on a Canon 7D. Like <laughs> my camera is better than a Canon 7D, you know? Yeah. And so, which is why I also, why I don't think they did a lot of color adjusting in post because there's just not much color uh, depth to manipulate mm -hmm. in post before the image starts really breaking apart. And so that means you need to capture what you want on the day. You need to shape the mm -hmm. light on the day the exact way that you want it or as close to uh, as close as you can in the time constraints of shooting a film. And that means having a game plan and saying and testing, okay, here's what here's the most we can do with uh, coloring and post. And so you probably build out your whole pipeline before you ever step on set. And so with that, you're shooting on a Canon 7D. It also allows some really nice things. Uh, you can go handheld, um, which is a lot, which they do a lot, right? It's grounded, it's realism. And of course it plays into the story, right? They're making a documentary in the movie. So let's feel like we're documenting the story, right? The camera work and visual style fits the story's needs. This style wouldn't work as well for a horror film or a heist film or a period piece but it's perfect for a secret cult investigation. Like this is exactly what you want. And so they were thinking about how do we maximize our budget while also filling the story's needs. Um, the lighting, like you said, a lot of practicals, a lot of shaping the available light and modifying it, or maybe adding a small off-camera light to just add a hint of uh, rim. Like I see a lot of little edge lighting that they're doing. Uh, and so maybe that's small, little movable. They throw a, one or two lights on a stand that costs, you know, 200 bucks. I'm like, okay, we can work with this or whatever. Who knows what, what, you know, Rachel has access to because she probably owns a few lights of her own and brought it all to set. I bet everything she owned was on that set. And I think they use a lot of nice, when they can, backlighting for drama, you know, when, where it's possible. Like some of these hallway shots, um, these moments of uncertainty. Suddenly, you know, they're walking down the hall and it's like they're going towards the light, right? It's playing into this cult idea of, uh, you know, death and trust and dying to self, um, these are all things cults demand of you, uh, in my opinion, uh, my mm -hmm. untrained opinion. Um, mm -hmm. And so let's look at some of the story and writing. One of the great things they do about uh, with this film is that they start quick. I love that we start in the middle of a scene. We're driving down a dark street. We're pulling into a garage. And so start with the mystery. What the F is happening? There's no setup or testing the camera, microphones. We're going to be making a documentary on a cult with a leader who says she's from the future. No. 
Like, just throw us in and make us ask before telling us. And then drip it along the way. You're going to tell us along the way what's going on. You'll, you'll fill us in. And then a great story in writing. I'm sure they sat, and sat around in the circle and said, what's the creepiest, weirdest stuff that we can do that doesn't cost us anything? Okay, here we go. Um, and so they threw in all these creepy factors and moments to remember, right? The intense security and uniformity. Just getting there is a, a whole adventure. And then you are forced to shower and bathe and be clean. And which is later revealed that she she hasn't adapted well to our germs of, you know, modern day. There you have this moment later in the film where they're breathing together, Right all in unison. That's creepy. That's really effective. And it's very culty. Uh, same thing with the little weird exercising that they're doing. Uh, just like, what's the point of this? Uh, and of course he tells you like, this is to empty your mind so that you can actually hear or whatever garbage vomiting the apple. That's a really strong moment. Uh, and it's so gross and so telling as well. Eating the worms. They, they sit around and eat the earthworms, um, which you know, I, I I was just curious, can you eat worms? And yeah, 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 you can eat them. Mm-hmm. Earthworms are, <laughs> I'm quoting an NPR article here, earthworms are a wriggling superfood. They're high in protein and have high levels of iron and of amino acids, which help break down food and repair body tissue. They also contain copper, manganese, and zinc. And I take ZMA every day. I take protein. Gross. Yeah. yeah. Gross. So guess what's now in my diet, Todd? I got a whole yeah, right. yeah. Start putting worms in your in your in your cereal or in your yogurt in the morning. My protein shake uh, goes out. Oh god. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I'm done. Um oh, and then another creepy factor, they want a little girl. That's creepy. For what? What do you really want? And we'll we'll come back to that in a, in a second. Writing-wise, they also give some really quick, great, tragic backstories to explore that creates depth in our characters. And also, it creates emotional vulnerability to Maggie, right? So Peter's mom died on his birthday. This became fodder in the story. His whole backstory became fodder. An extended moment with Maggie. So now we get to expound a little bit more on what he experienced as a kid, um, right? And Peter later on denies that moment is real. But in hindsight, we can interpret this uh, that maybe he's actually part of Maggie's community in the future and that he tells her this story, that he knows, she actually knows, and isn't just reading his mail because she's magic, but because, and so you can construct that. That's not given. None of this is given. It's all open to interpretation. That's one of the fun things. Uh, Lorna was neglected, right, by her wealthy, famous parents. Um, And so she's looking for something too. And this makes both characters completely vulnerable to the draw of a cult. And so they're, they're walking in with certain plans. And then along the way, we begin to test that. Are they falling victim? Are they starting to buy into the cult? Uh, Which Lorna seems to, and I think I'll touch on that in a little bit, but let's just talk about cults for a second here, Uh, specifically as demonstrated through this movie, but I think you can apply this to most cults. Humans, let's start here. Humans are highly tuned social creatures. It's how we learn everything, right? Language. Just Just imagine how social you need to be in order to learn language as a baby from nothing. Like 
There's no little language node that someone, you know, inserts, hey, here's your USB chip. I'm going to stick it in your ear. No, you just learn language from being around people. And everything we do is highly social. And so we're just hardwired uh, for the most part. There's always exceptions based on whatever, anatomy, any number of things. But we are such social creatures, right? Customs, right? Everything we do in America is very different from the way things run in Japan, right? These are completely different cultures and we all know how to interact with each other through customs, like a handshake, right? That's unique to us and part of a, a part of a culture. Handshakes are part of a culture. And so ultimately our strength and our weakness is how social and high, how highly tuned we are as uh, social animals. And so with that in mind, let's talk about the social pressures of cults, right? Christine, in that scene that we were listening to, vomits the apple up. This sets the standard. And now social pressure makes everyone do it through Maggie's approval. See how committed Christine is? Now everyone vomits. Everyone starts following suit. And then she sees Peter hasn't done it right. Peter, there's no rush. We'll wait for you. What she's saying there is, this isn't an optional exercise. Everyone is a part or no one's a part. And so the pressure for Peter to do the same, right? He's the weird one now. And we don't feel, no one wants to feel like an outsider. It's not a good feeling. Uh, it's something that you have to force yourself into and be comfortable with, uh, which probably explains a lot of my life. Um, I, I just grew up weird in all kinds of ways. Uh, but I, I doesn't mean I still like enjoying, you know, being the outsider. That's why I usually don't discuss my politics around people is because I'm always going to be the outsider and it's just not fun uh, being heterodox. And so for Peter, right, she then starts to read him, uses his trauma to make him feel understood and loved. This is a very social, this is what charismatic people do. They're so good at their social engineering, at the ability to read someone that you can pick up on uh, cues and things they've said in the past and start to put together a lot about someone's uh, inner workings. And then, of course, this, be, this makes him feel understood, makes him feel loved. And then look at the end of that scene. Everyone swarms him with love afterwards. Like 60 seconds prior, one guy was ready to stand up and beat his ass. And now he's hugging him. And so accepting and following suit and uh, letting the peer pressure get to you results in love. This is how you engineer someone to do what you want them to do. It's probably what you would call grooming, right? It's just telling people through actions, through acceptance or rejection of how to get someone to do what you want. Uh, this is what cults are very much primed to do. And which leads us to Lamb. Right. He asks an honest question like, hey, you know, that's the cranberries, right? Can you tell us anything about the future? And what does she do? She turns it back on him. People are very, very good about this. Uh, charismatic people, uh, cult leaders, religious zealots. Uh, they're all very good at turning your questions back on you and putting the spotlight on you. This is uh, projecting and redirecting. This is how they get you to think about yourself now instead of you know them defending themselves, they're making you defend you. And so what does she do? She ejects him, which conditions the group to not ask questions. And of course, later on, she has a reason, right? She ejected him for, for a reason. And it's be, and it contradicts our suspicions, all right? Our suspicion is what Peter says. 
yeah, because he asked you a question. She's like, no, oh, I don't care about that. Of course not. Of course. Of course. Who, who, why wouldn't a religious zealot, you know, mind being questioned in front of their followers? What's, 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 you know, vulnerable about that? No, of course not. She has a really good reason. And so, of course, she didn't have him leave because he was asking questions. She had a perfectly good reason, and which was she didn't she didn't know him growing up, and therefore he must not be uh, a part of our organization. It's it's reasonable, it's a reasonable thing, you know, and it's always going to sound reasonable. But nope, cults and zealots do not have their authority questioned by anyone ever, and it's always disguised with logical religious reasoning. Um, a lot of cults like to use Watchman Nee. It's a book um, by Watchman Nee. I forget what it's called, uh, but it's it's all about authority and why the authority in your life was placed there by God. And therefore, questioning your authority is tantamount to questioning God. Ugh. And if you question God, you're living in rebellion. This is a tactic and it's been used against me. And I will get to that later. But then we have uh, Maggie. Maggie's really interesting, right? She's charming. She's beautiful. And uh, even Lorna knows that and Lorna's, you know, gorgeous herself. And she's over here feeling jealous of, of Maggie and Peter and accusing him of, uh, try, you know, being attracted to her or whatever. And he's like, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, which I think was an honest, genuine reaction. He's like, what? We're here to do a thing. But she is. And she's also powerful. Maggie is powerful in her absolutism. And this is really the draw because absolutism confidence in knowing everything it's very comforting because life is uncertain we gravitate to people who have answers there really are no answers though and life in general or even from maggie right she doesn't ever give anyone any answers vague events right we don't know what's coming and this film never tells you what's coming and in that and in that way it's kind of interesting because it doesn't also look to blame a particular thing like we all we know is there's a civil war coming things come together and they fall apart it's a really dark time that's what she says um and that's vague and it sounds right and what does a civil war even mean does it mean there's actual guns picked up or is it more symbolic this, these are also things cults do all the time they they say something literally and then later reinterpret it in hindsight as something that was really symbolic all along you just didn't realize it why, why aren't you have faith, right? The problem is you. <laughs> it's not my inability to predict the future, even though I have a direct line with God or whoever the future. Yeah. And so let's talk about that a little bit in terms of the naming conventions seem to be derived a lot. Maybe, maybe not all. Some of these I'll, I'm going to stretch, but they seem to be derived biblically, right? Peter, especially hands down, his is biblical because Peter in the Bible denies Christ, but ultimately Christ gives him the kingdom. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That's you know what's in the Bible. And so Peter becomes the, the founder of what later becomes the, the Catholic Church. And their whole identity is rooted in that, is in Peter being the very first person to start the church. Uh, you can trace the lineage of every pope all the way back to Peter. That's, that's the argument the, the Catholic Church makes for being whatever they are, they say they are. And so Maggie... It's probably a play on Mary Magdalene. Um, that's what I would guess. Abigail seems to be a play on Abby or an abbot, which is a cleric in the church. And lamb, L-A-M, I think is maybe a play on the sacrificial lamb, right? Because he gets sacrificed for the group. He gets kicked out. And his wife's name is Christine. 
right? Which I would say is a play on Christ. I'm not saying all these characters reflect their naming convention. Um, I'm just saying that it was used as a way to flesh out your character names because why not, why not use that stuff? It's, it's all free, you know? Yeah. And then you have, and this one's the silliest one of them all, but I think it, I think it works. Uh, you have Klaus, which I think is Claus, like, uh, cause he's kind of like Santa Claus like that. Um, uh, right. He's pro- <laughs> he finds Maggie. He, he provides for her. He's l- overlooking her. He's making sure everyone that gets in is good, right? Their, their names are on his good list. Uh, and so I think it's just a, a si- silly, simple way to, to, to name him because why not? And my last couple things, setting the stage, I think uh, they do a really great job. The handshake, the first time that handshake, we see it, it starts off kind of odd, slightly creepy because you're like, what are we doing? And then it becomes comical, right? You have the finger snaps and the hip slap uh, and you're just like, this is, uh, you know, silly. And then then it settles into creepy again after they kind of lean each other's uh, heads against each other on, onto, onto their hands. And it, it kind of takes you through this journey and cults are kind of comical like that from the outside looking in, right? Um, cults are very silly. You know, we're going to all wear the same shoes and catch a comet. Uh, Mormons have a handshake and they also have like special underwear. And that's true. Like uh, I know Mormons, I know ex-Mormons and that those things are true. Those things are real. That's not stuff that's, you know, just fabricated to make them look silly. It, it makes them look silly because it's true. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, not, not that I have, well, I don't want, anyway. Um, Maggie, <laughs> uh, setting the stage, Maggie is blonde. Abigail is blonde. Well, I think almost everyone else in the film is brunette. And I think that helps us connect those two characters a lot stronger. We start to connect mm-hmm. the dots before the reveal. And now we're waiting for a confirmation, right? We do the calculation. Maggie is born in 20 years. This little girl is like eight. Yeah, the age is right that she could be her mom. They have the same hair color. Oh man, Abigail is her mom. I figured it out. This is the big reveal. And then Maggie reveals it, which confirms us. And it makes us feel good for a moment before we start to immediately question her again. Because it feels like they confirmed our suspicions too quickly. And now we go from, yes, I got it to wait, she's lying. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really great tug of war that you're putting on the audience because you make us feel for a brief moment that we're one step ahead before realizing, no, 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 we're, we're, we're one step behind. And so at that final moment, it's so satisfying. It's a great use of the handshake because leading into this moment, I'm like, what is going to happen here? What could she possibly do to convince us that she's from the future in this one moment? How is it, what does any of this mean? And then, you know, suddenly there's this beautiful dramatic moment that brings clarity to the handshake and feels like we've actually solved the critical question, um, which is, is Maggie who she says she is, right? And I think it starts very slowly. And I love how much time they take in developing that moment because we're just watching her kneel down. She makes sure Peter stays back and Abigail not afraid. She's like, why would I be afraid? I love that. They confirm that for the audience that Abigail's not afraid. She's good. She's straight. And she walks up to her slowly. And then she puts her hand out. Uh, Maggie puts her hand out and just waits. And Abigail looks at the hand for a hot second looks up at uh, Maggie before looking back down at her hand again and then slowly putting her hand on top 
And then she does a little tap on the wrist. And then she reciprocates the tap underneath her wrist. And what I love is that close-up. We cut to these close-ups in their eyes of surprise and recognition. Man, it feels good. It feels authentic. It's a great finish to uh, the film and to solving the riddle of what the F is up with this handshake? Why is it so silly? It's silly because a little girl made it. Of course, it's going to have a hit slap and a, a, a snap of the fingers. Like that's what little kids do, right? That's what all my handshakes had, man. I, I promise you. Um, and it, it's such a great ending because she finishes it with, how do you know my secret handshake? Which confirms that Abigail doesn't know her. She's never met her. She's let alone taught her, her precious handshake. Um, and of course the response from Abigail is you taught me. Um, and you buy in at that moment, we all have buy-in. We all feel like Peter, uh, in the exact same way that Peter's feeling right now as the founder of the church, right? This is now his mantle to take up. Uh, I think they take us through such a great story that pulls and pushes and almost invites you to check out before convincing you that you just experienced something really interesting. And my last note here is on the justice uh, department lady. Who was Carol Briggs? I I think there's something you can interpret this a, a lot of ways, right? Carol Briggs, she, she announces herself to uh, Lorna. Um, Carol Briggs, I'm with the justice department. Okay. Maggie's wanted for armed robbery and arson, but she shows no proof of this. And so they set up a, a sting operation, but there's only two cops and we don't know what she's arrested for. And so I think there's a lot of ways you can interpret this one. Uh, it's not important. It's just enough to make you feel like we're never going to see Maggie again, but it could also be interpreted as uh, there's other forces at play. Maybe, maybe uh, uh, Carol Briggs was sent from the past, from the future to remove that as a threat. I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of ways that you can play around with that. Yeah. I, 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 basically that's, that's all I got. So it just, it convinced me that she was full of shit. Yeah. You know, that Maggie was full of shit. That's what, whether she did it or not after that last scene, I, I didn't even think about it really. I was like, Oh, wait a minute. No, she is, yeah. she is real. This is real. That was um, good enough, right? No, no, bring her back. Yeah. You know? Um, so yeah, that's a good point though, of like raising the question of, okay, well, why would Colonel, why would Briggs say that if like, did she really do that? Like when would she have had time to do that when she was living on the streets, you know, like maybe, maybe she did something living on the streets or something, or something was blamed on her during that time. I'm, I'm not sure, but, but I, it, story-wise it just made me think okay no she is full of shit so it sent me further down that path of okay no this is bullshit i'm a hundred percent convinced now that she's full of it and uh, i just wonder okay where is this going to lead to like what is the climax going to be of her she's going to do something to this girl or whatever so because of that because i was a hundred percent convinced that she was full of it when i find out that she's not it was actually way more surprising, you know? So it almost doesn't even matter story-wise whether she did it or not, but having it in there was a the sol, the gold solidification of she's full of it. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much all I got, man. Any other uh, final thoughts? Um, oh, actually, uh, sorry, go yeah. ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I had two more questions for you, but they're slightly askew of the story. And so... Um, if you have actual thoughts on the movie, the filmmaking, um, the the story itself, 
whatever. No, I, I thought that this, just everything that you had been saying was like a spot on and, and really insightful. I mean, I would, I would say, you know, um, I love the idea of take a broad story that people are, you know, could be, could identify with, or, or at least be interested in, and then, and then drill down into each individual character. I think that this, this movie did that really, really well with Peter and his girlfriend are the same. They have the same goal. And then that, that diverts throughout the the film. I love that uh, because then that separates the core, right? There's this core of like this versus that. And then this starts fracturing, right? And as that fractures, so does my view of that as a viewer to the point where I'm not even sure. And then at the end, it all comes to fruition. And the, the fractured this is now, you know, completely broken at the end. And then it leaves you, and then just the way that it left it just hanging, just ending. So many movies don't do that now. They they tie everything up in a bow or they, it could have ended here, but then it went another 15 minutes or something. And why did we even need that? They just, no, we're going to get in, we're going to tell a story and we're going to freaking end it and leave you with something to take with you. And I, and, and knowing that it was only 135,000, I mean, don't get me wrong. That's a lot of money for especially for indie film. Yeah. If I had 135, that changes a lot of the movie we're trying to make. Yeah, bro. I mean, you know, the movie that you're trying to make is like 50, 60 grand, you know, and that, that's still a lot, you know, right. Cause, but you know, obviously you think about a movie that's 90 minutes long or so. And, and you know, that money goes really, really fast, Yeah, but still, you know, having, having the names i guess they weren't really names back in 2010 or 2011 maybe brit was a little bit but but having having the caliber of actor having the 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 caliber of cinematographer in that place that's familiar like la you know all of those things and doing it for that budget is is just a i think it was a masterclass in in what you said put the money in front of the camera and minimize the story financially but maximize it emotionally. And I think that they did a really, really great job doing that. Well said. Damn. Yeah. Two quick questions. <laughs> so I, I I always write questions for you and I most of have to, lately I've been forgetting to ask them. And so I had to remind myself. One, ever been in the cult? <laughs> <laughs> sure, it's called Iron Man. <laughs> <laughs> did it feel like that? Oh God. Yeah. Oh yeah. There were the, the, you've done it and you haven't done it or, you know, you're going to do it. And it was all sectioned, sectioned off. No, no, it wasn't a cult. (laughs) No, I, I I mean, other than Christian, you know, being a Christian and, and being a Catholic. No, I mean, the Catholic church is pretty much cult. I would say. Nice. Sorry for anybody who's Catholic (laughs) listening to this, but, uh, that if you don't see it, then you're in it. So, Uh, yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah. I, you could make the argument I have been. Uh, it's not a classic cult, so uh, where you as in like drink Kool Aid. Yeah, it wasn't quite there, and because because my cult, like your reference to Catholicism, uh, was rooted in Christianity, um, and so there was less of the I forget what you call them, but the, the your leader right is wasn't as wasn't a Maggie, wasn't a Koresh, where they're they're controlling you for whatever their specific deviancy is right sex with you know young women or lots of women um or 
putting you in the same clothes like oh you need to wear white short sleeve button up shirts with a black tie and that's the only thing you, or whatever and so it wasn't that kind of cult but still very culty a lot still much overlap like the, the stuff i was talking about with respecting authority hardline through my church you certainly didn't question your authority um and if you did you're in rebellion uh, and if you're in rebellion you're in sin you need to repent you need to repent for questioning your authority like can you imagine someone telling you you not only don't question me but to question me is to be a sin like that's that's insane if anyone's telling you that they're they're wrong they're lying to you they may not know that you're lying uh, they're lying to you it may be completely innocent in that way but they are wrong um and i think the best of intentions are a good way to pave the streets of hell and so yeah i i won't go into all the details but there's certain elements that i certainly identify with and i would say that and I still have a lot of great friends I met through my cult. And so they're good people. <laughs> <laughs> through my cult? <laughs> through my cult. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's it, if you really think about it, if you really, like, how do you define a cult, right? Uh, and, and one, let's generalize, let's generalize, you know, just kind of like as a reference from our, right. from our uh, Count of Monte Cristo episode. <laughs> let's generalize. A cult is, in a way, this is the truth. And if you don't agree with this and believe in it, then you're wrong. That, mm -hmm. That's it. I mean, and we can, you can, there are extremes as in, if you don't believe in this, you'll go to hell or, you know, it, what, you have to believe this or you're damned, you know, like yeah, there's extremes, but in general, here is the truth. Choose to accept it and be part of this and part of us or don't and leave. Like that's just to generalize, right? Who doesn't want to know the secret? If I have a secret and mm -hmm. it's contrary to everything you've ever heard, but this is the truth and it's the truth that the world doesn't want you to know, it's very enticing. And maybe media plays a part in this because every film starts with a question, right? Um, and it's a question that we need to solve. There's a riddle. There's something that our hero needs to figure out and discover uh, to save the world. We, we are inundated with films about being the one, the chosen one. Um, and the special one, the one that goes against the tide when everything else is telling you um, one thing, you believe the other thing, that's the truth. And the truth is hard. And that's it's really enticing to be told that, yeah. hey, we have the answer. Yeah, yeah why not? Because why, why then you're be part of the truth. Yeah. Then you're part of the truth. You're part of the uh, you're on the right side. Right. But it's and that's I mean, honestly, to be honest, I mean, and I. I you know, I grew up as a Catholic my whole life and it, it checks all of those boxes, man. Hmm. Uh, it really does. It's that here is, this is it. And you're either with us or you're against us kind of thing. I mean, that's what it is. If you come down, I mean, most religion in general, I would argue would be that way. There, There is no dialogue. There is only, we're going to tell you what's right and what's true. And you can either accept it and be a part of this or not and leave that, that that's literally every single religion. And so you, you kind of have to lump them in with that kind of cult mentality. Now you can, you also have the crazy cults, you know, like the, the, um, the branch Davidian and, or like worse, Heaven's you Gate, know, like people, yeah. Heaven's Gate. Yes. That, that would be the, the main one. Right. And Jim, but, there, I forget what, uh, God, something 
town. Ah, yeah, the the Kool Aid gym. The, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You have you have those, and I think those are used as kind of like an extremist way of describing Jonestown. <laughs> Sorry, Jonestown. Thank you. <laughs> of coming of an extremist way of saying no, 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 no. Those are cults. Right. Right. What mm-hmm. we believe is not. What we believe is true, and and we have millions of followers to to show you that it that it is. Even though we give you no proof, we give you just our word and a few pages in a book. Like, yeah, and that's what was powerful as a whenever I was a Christian was studying and reading up about Martin Luther, um, not mm-hmm. doctor, not the not, doctor, but right. Martin Luther, the ninety five thesis, right, the the Protestant Reformation. Like, that's a really powerful story about standing up against. Uh, the authority of the time like that was the yeah. authority and to sit here and say y'all are doing wrong y'all are in sin by saying that you can pay for sin right penance um, and all these other things that's a really powerful story and it um, those are the kinds of people in the moments that give me a lot of courage to say you know what when when it's not popular i'm okay with being not popular i'm also okay with saying you know trying to sit and be objective on everything and say sometimes the popular thing is the right thing. Sure. A good point. That's painful. It doesn't, you know, that's never appealing to say, oh yeah, you know, the, the person I despise, a political party that I despise actually has a point here. They're, they're making mm-hmm. a good point. That's not fun. Um, but truth doesn't really concern itself with those kinds of things. Um, Very and being important. willing to go against the grain as well as know when it's okay to go with the tide is all okay. And so I'm encouraged because after my church broke through all that, culty stuff it really turned turned into like a really good healthy place and i think everyone who's still there is in a radically different place than they were and that was a really eye-opening i don't know five years i forget how long it took for for that stuff to to burn away but it was it was painful a lot of people went through a lot of things and i think ultimately if you're willing to analyze and, and call people out uh question authority number one if if you can just have the gall to question authority and be okay with the consequences. Um, there can be a lot of good stuff that can come out of that. I uh, man, I couldn't say it better. And that I'm really glad you brought up Martin Luther. Cause, cause I, I felt like in, in what I was saying, I was kind of like talking, talk, talking down to like, you know, belief in general. And I'm definitely mm, not, no, no, I, because Martin Luther was, I mean, a, a, pretty much a saint. I mean, like he was, he definitely believed in God. We'll say that, <laughs> you know, and he just believed that the people who were, who were running the church were doing it wrong. He was wow. questioning authority. Like you said, it's, it's not about believing in God in general. It's about the way that it's done to convince people that you're right. Like that's, that's the difference. The difference is, <laughs> is, is wanting to to make a community so bad that you're willing to make people scared or feel bad to want to be a part of it rather than just believing it. Right. So anyway, amen. Nice. Well, what are you going to recommend this week, man? Yeah. So, uh, nothing kind of like, like this. Well, I guess a little bit like this actually now I'm getting, now that I'm thinking about it. So I've been, uh, kind of binging raised by wolves on HBO, which I hadn't seen before. Season two is out. And I hadn't seen it at all. I'd been wanting to see it because it's sci-fi and it's a sci-fi show and everything. And But it's, you know, the episodes are really long. It's just a really long, drawn-out story. Uh, but there are a ton, I mean, it's it's atheists versus believers, right? Oh, yeah. And that's, that is the, 
That's the the whole impetus of the entire show, right? And there are arguments on on both sides in a lot of ways. But anyway, it's just a really intriguing. It, it's crazy weird uh, <laughs> towards the end of the of season one, um, but it's just it's enjoyable and it's really good to to go back to when I whenever I um, have an hour or two hours or or whatever. Nice. So. I love it. Yeah. I'm going to recommend, I'm going to stay on the Brit Marling train here. Cool. And recommend the East. Similar. If you've seen another earth, if you've seen sound of my voice um, and you just kind of want to vibe with her a little bit more. Uh, I, I think the East is the right ticket. It's, it's still really great ideas, really strong ideas. Um, that'll take you interesting places. Uh, and I just, I think she's so good. I'm so mad that they canceled the OA. I wouldn't say I that was my favorite show, but it was interesting and it had me curious about what was coming next. And um, I wish we could have had a third season. My God, that's such a wild show. I loved it. But yeah, so the East, go check that out um, and stay tuned for next week when we cover. Uh, look at the look at the notes or, or any of the girl. Remember? OK, nice. We're going to cover the girl with the dragon tattoo. This is the recent one by David Fincher um, and noted. and so stay tuned for that um if you're enjoying the show don't forget to subscribe um, and review us wherever you listen to the show whether that's itunes spotify Castbox. uh i I have no idea where all we are i when we got the show up and running i submitted to like 50 places and then forgot about it all the hardest part about uh, the podcasting life is really getting it started. If you want to start a podcast, just know that it gets easier once it's up and running. Um, you know what? We should do an episode where I just interview you about the oh, podcast nice. and getting this up and running and doing this and the idea, ideation and all that stuff. Dude, that would be fun. Yeah. Let's do it after after tattoo. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Fun. All right. Well, if you want to comment on this episode, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash sound of my voice. And our quote of the day today is from Joseph Smith. Interesting. Whatever God requires is right, no matter what it is, although we may not see the reason thereof until all of the events transpire. So if you don't know who Joseph wow. Smith is... <laughs> This guy is the founder of Mormonism or the Church of uh, Latter-day Saints. Yeah, this this is a very convenient thing for a, a cult leader to say, right? Hey, whatever God requires is right, no matter what it is. Although we may not see the reason until everything's transpired. Like, how convenient. What a really good word from God. <laughs> How, how useful is that as a leader um, who, who doesn't need to be questioned, right? Uh, because if whatever he's hearing is from God, then the, the, the correlation here is everything, you can just insert his name. Whatever Joseph Smith requires is right, no matter what it is. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's so dirty and it's so gross. I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry to deviate, keep deviating so far away from the, the topic at hand. Um, but yeah, Joseph Smith, way to go, bro. That's a, that's a good line. <laughs> good on you, bro. Good yeah. on you. <laughs> nice pile of garbage there. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, I had a great time, man. I thought, thank you for uh, recommending this movie. It's really, it was really fun. 
cover. Awesome. Thanks, man. Make sure you join us next week. We'll be covering Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. And, uh, you know, review us on iTunes. Subscribe. All that good stuff. Share us with your friends. It all helps. It really does. Thank you so much for uh, all the reviews and uh, subscriptions that we've gotten so far. We really appreciate it. Until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies. Thank you.